This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, movie fans, Dimitri here for Popcorn Talks Anatomy of the Movie, where today we are going back. It's a throwback Friday. We're going back about 40 years to show where a movie proved that we were not alone, and that is Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which is celebrating its 40th anniversary this year. Stay tuned. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. And now, here's Popcorn Talk's Anatomy of a Movie. Hey, movie fans. How's it going, everybody? I am very excited to be here and to talk about Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Yeah, it's a throwback Friday, uh, but the movie was just re-released in theaters, so you had the opportunity to see it on a big screen, which I very much would urge you to do, uh, because it's just amazing, and I think it's very exciting that we get to talk about it, along with my awesome, wonderful host, Marissa Serafini. Hello, everyone. Yes, I'm here. You know, I talked about you. I, I was invited. I was invited. Can you believe I was invited to be a guest on Meet the Movie Press I today? Know. Look at that. Um, Making yeah, your was, way around. I was extremely excited and honored to have been asked, but uh, I, I talked. I got to talk a little bit about anatomy, and I talked about my wonderful hosts and how they allowed me to sit next to them to talk movies, and, and I brought you up, and Phil, who unfortunately... He was abducted by the mothership. He was. Not so much abducted as... I think as he, 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 he just, chose to go He just on. chose to go. He left when they left. Yeah, you know? he left. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> anyway, so yeah, so we're talking Close Encounters of the Third Kind, a movie that's 40 years old. And in my mind, time has gone by so fast. It is as relevant and as a epic beautiful movie today as it was when it was released in November of 1977. So uh, I, I can't wait to talk about this movie. Marissa, when was your first, when was your first encounter <laughs> with Close Encounters of the Third Kind? Um, admittedly, because I was not alive when this first one came out, or like just this one, I think it was the only one. Um, so I wasn't alive when it first came out, so I wasn't around for like the, the whole... Um, the the big epicness of what this movie came out to be, I guess you can say that. Uh, I had watched this movie in parts, like over the years of my life. I don't think I ever really watched it in one sitting together in its entirety until oh, last no. week when I watched this. And I was like, I can understand why people love it so much. I can understand why it made such an impact on society and just movie going. And we'll get into all, all the technical sure. aspects of the film. It's like, I can understand why this is like an iconic movie now. And uh, But as a viewer, as an adult watching it, I can end up in a film major, you know, just like really looking at it. There's some things I can... I can see where people love it, and some things I can see where people didn't. Okay. Um, but overall, I can I really appreciated what Steven Spielberg pulled off forty years right. ago. Do you know which version you watched? 
uh, of the Phil movie. and I watched the director's cut. Okay. And it it was long. <laughs> yeah, it's about two hours and some change. Yeah, like uh, two hours, maybe twenty minutes. Yeah, around somewhere there. around there. Uh huh. Um, and it's the definitive. It's the it's the it's the version. Uh, well, since we're talking about versions, um, we we can talk about that. Um, yeah, it's it's the third version. It's the version that Steven Spielberg um, champions. It's the one that he okay. believes is the definitive uh, in the the cut that he wishes he was able to put out back in 1977. Um, so why are there three versions of this movie? Um, we're going to get into a lot about the making of this, but it's, it's a very interesting tale because <clears throat> Columbia Pictures uh, and Michael and Julia Phillips, who were, who were big-time producers of the 70s, uh, they had actually just come off of The Sting. Uh, and this was going to be Steven Spielberg's next project after Jaws. And it was something that he was working on during Jaws and um, because he was a believer of UFOs. He loved that whole thing, but it was also the 70s. Uh, I argue that Close Encounters is definitely a movie of its time that couldn't be, that couldn't probably most likely wouldn't be made today. Like a studio wouldn't put in because it's a one-shot movie, so to speak, and he never wanted to make a sequel. But so he, he works on this movie and they put it together. Uh, Columbia Pictures at the time was in financial disarray. In fact, they were very close to bankruptcy. Very close to bankruptcy. They were banking on Close Encounters. And where Spielberg wanted it to release it in 1978, uh, Columbia Pictures had said, we want it out for Christmas of 77. So he was losing a lot of... He was losing time that he thought he was going to have. Yeah, that's a whole year earlier. <laughs> yeah, it was. he wanted summer of 78. They wanted it winter holiday season of 77. It had to be on the books. So his editing process became uh, a, a struggle. In fact, he even says probably the toughest part was editing the last 25 minutes of this movie. Okay. So he puts it together. They get the special effects. It gets out into the theaters. And huge does really big business for columbia pictures it saves their ass okay but spielberg you're welcome well yeah i mean it really even though he wasn't happy with the cut and the edit and even some of the special effects he was like it made money It, it and it furthered spielberg's career you gotta understand spielberg at this time was still under 30 years old wow as a film director and he had already had Sugarland Ex- right. Sugar Express, Duel, uh, Jaws, Jaws, right? Changed everything. And then Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So with that, it, it, it made a ton of money, nominated for Academy Awards. Spielberg wanted to go back and finish the movie. So he went back to Columbia. And they said, you know, we'll give you the money to finish it and to, and to shoot scenes that you wanted. However... If you're going to do it to, well, to get the money, you have to film a scene inside the mothership. Mm. Okay. And he didn't want to, but he it was a compromise. And they were going to give him the money to finish the movie. And he said, I'll do it. So then came out Close Encounters of the Third Kind, the special edition, which was released theatrically. And the big marketing thing is, see what's inside. Uh, you get to follow... Smart. 
Roy Neary goes inside the mothership, and there you go. Well, Spielberg never really liked having to have to do that. He always felt that it's best for the audience to, to leave it up to their own imagination. And, and two, as an ending for Roy Neary's story, I, personally, as a, as a lover of this movie and a movie lover in general, I just like the fact that he walks up into the light and that's the end of his story. Yeah. Right? So, audience interpretation. Right. It's audi- Leave it up to the audience. And then uh, he was able to go back and he actually, he took some scenes from the original Took some scenes, it's sort of like, he took some scenes out of the special edition, re-edited some things, and he comes up with the director's cut, which is the cut that he now endorses fully. Uh, It was on the 35th anniversary of this beautiful Blu-ray set. A new one is coming out very soon to celebrate the 40th, and hence you get the director's cut of the movie. And in, in each cut, much like Blade Runner, where Ridley Scott has five different versions. Right. Uh, it's fun to see the progression of the movie. But that, in a nutshell, is the story of why we get three versions of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Which, when you think about it, how many movies get theatrical release for yeah. every version? Three different versions. Yeah. I mean, that, and that just is a testament <clears throat> to Spielberg and how much they believed in him. And him as a director, him as a creator. So yeah. Yeah. For him. And you can tell, too, that the marketing people, because that was one of the things. It's like, what's in the ship? So Sony marketing is like, well, if he's going to do it, we're going to. That's our mark. See what's inside. Right. It's the special And the edition. version that we watched, the director's cut, you don't go into the no. ship. You only see the platform. Yep. The, that, that whole scene is cut out, but scenes like the, um, the, um, that, that cargo vessel in the, uh, in the desert, that catatonic uh, ship is brand new. Uh, well, was put into that seat, was put into the director's cut and special mm-hmm. edition and not in the original edition. And uh, yeah, the branching of it and what he re-edited is, is, is somewhat fascinating. If, and I believe this new edition on Blu-ray will have a branching sequence. So you, you can tell it'll pop up going, hey, this, this scene was not originally here, but it came from here and whatnot. So That's cool. As a movie historian and lover of that stuff, it, it's sort of kind of cool for this movie. Um, so, you know, the other thing that's wonderful about this movie on the big screen, practical effects. Practical effects. Yes. Okay, here, here's my question. Now, yeah. well, I have a couple questions for you. Did you see the this originally when it first mm-hmm. was released? I you did. saw it in theaters? Yep. Now watching it as... You know, uh, as an adult, did you it like does it suffer from the theory of diminished return, or was it as great as you expected it? Yeah, you know, it's funny because I have that in my rundown uh, as a kid and as now. And as a kid, Close Encounters, well, a it managed to scare the bejesus out of me. Okay, okay. <laughs> number one, there are some pretty as a as an eleven year old. There are some pretty horrific scenes, like when Barry gets abducted. You don't know what's going on. And and that, I think, is part of the magic of Close Encounters. If you're watching it for the first time and you don't know much of the background, are they malevolent? Are they benevolent? Yeah. Right? They're good or bad? Like, And, and this isn't an uh, Independence Day kind of a movie, but yet they abduct a little kid, and it's a horrific scene. Nails coming up oh, that, from the like- grate. 
the, sorry, the the whole abducting of the kid that really bothered me because I'm like, where the heck are his parents? They're like, oh, okay. Well, the mother is there. She's a single mother, which is which is a common trope in Steven Spielberg movies uh, because his parents got divorced when he was young. So she's a single mom. Um, and that's the other thing, too, that we'll talk about. It really did show families in a realistic way, albeit broken. So we had a single mom with Barry who loved her son very much. He gets abducted. Uh, quick little um, trivia. Mm-hmm. So as he's going through the little doggy door, right, the little trap door. So on the other side of that door was the actor whose name is uh, Corey, I believe. Uh, she was the one pulling him through. Right. So if you look like closely, yeah, well, if you look closely and you have it on Blu-ray and you can stop it by frame, you there's an arm which you would assume would be an alien arm. It's actually his mom's arm uh, pulling him go. through. And that's what helped make him go through that door. Uh, he also knew what was going to happen in that kitchen. Like like they, mm-hmm. they, they let the little boy know they didn't tell Melinda Dillon. What was going to happen in the kitchen? Oh, so her reactions were more authentic. Real. She was like, and she was literally trying to protect mm-hmm. the actor. Like, she thought shit was going to hit him. <laughs> so, so when he gets taken out the door, and he sort of caught it, it was like an in-joke for him. Mm-hmm. He's like, I wanted like he to knows. tell her. He knew, yeah. Wow. So, but as a kid, there was stuff that was scary. But then the wonder of it all towards the end, and when we see the aliens for the first time, there was, there was just like this this fascination, this wonder, like wow, this is they're not mean, they're not they're not mean. They're here to visit. They're bringing everything back. And when it goes off, back in a space to when you wish upon a star, the cue, yeah, it was like the first. Something else you have to understand too. It's the first of its kind where aliens weren't out to invade us. Okay, aliens were coming to the sky and you looked up at the sky and there was this wonder and like, wow, is something actually out there? So as a kid who loved science fiction and Spielberg always called it science speculation, right? Uh Instead of science fiction, Uh, he said, if you believed it's science speculation, if you didn't believe science fiction. But as a kid, it was just all about the wonder and like, wow. Okay, they're nice. That's cool, and how they tra- how they communicate with one another. And then when you go on to see ET, you can see how Close Encounters is like a prequel. It really affected ET. the the family aspect, an emotional aspect um, of of aliens. They're they're not mm-hmm. as scary as people make it out to believe because right. pe- it's more so the people fear the unknown, and people aren't very informed in the alien and extra terrestrial life so uh, i can understand where the themes of oh it's an alien they're going to play it up as a mystery or as a a thriller and the the scary aspect of it and i think spielberg does a great job of showing like the the lighter more positive side of that yeah absolutely and you also have to remember too that uh, what i say close encounters is born of its time because his idea was he believed in ufos heavily as a younger director right and a writer but also, it was a cover-up. Like, the world, the United States specifically, was, was, was coming off of Watergate, okay? Yeah. The, one of the biggest government <laughs> cover-ups, okay? 
And at the same time, you did have, there was a huge UFO craze, which many people believed was covered up by the government. Area 51, things like that. Oh, yeah. There's a reference to Bigfoot in this, right? Mm-hmm. Bigfoot was also a huge craze. Uh, he, <laughs> Bigfoot made an appearance, uh, a couple of appearances, in The Six Million Dollar Man, which was a huge show in the 70s as well with Lee Majors. And so all of these aspects of government cover-up, UFOs, people wanted to, you know, believe in certain things. This is what Close Encounters, like, came out of. This is where it was born from. So watching it as an adult now and knowing and and watching and having watched the movie many times, uh, various versions many times, but seeing it on the big screen, for me... Again, I still had that wonder and fantastic, like, beauty of it, but it was little things that I noticed that I, you can't catch on your television screen unless your television screen is an IMAX-type screen. For example, uh, air traffic control scene. When we come out of the desert and it wipes into the air traffic control, the first thing you see is that, that green radar. That green radar, like, covered the whole screen from floor to ceiling. And I was like, whoa, I, ha- I forget that as a kid. Mm-hmm. And since all the times I've watched it on TV, I just, you don't realize he, and he fills up the whole screen. And much like Ridley Scott did in Alien with little beeps and building suspense right. of the alien coming after Dallas. Well, he does the same thing here where he uses little beeps of the airplanes and they, this, this unidentified flying object flies by. Real air traffic controllers, by the way, is in that scene. Authenticity. Yeah, it, was, it was things like that that I noticed and the sound mix. You know, I saw it in like a Dolby Atmos kind of... When or, you were younger? Well, or? Just, now, just now. Just like okay. ships flying by. It, it was literally you know, the, the abduction scene. The scene where... Well, yeah. We'll, we'll talk yeah. about more, more no, but of that. You, but I'm just going like, these are the things that I noticed as an adult that just made me love this movie even more. And I had forgotten about the family aspect, the way that plays on the screen. And one of the reasons why is like, they wouldn't make this movie today because that family is broken. The Neary family. Yeah. And it's shown in such a realistic way that it was, that scene was uncomfortable when he's in the bathtub. I don't know if you felt that way. I felt that way with, you know, Ronnie yelling at him, the sun in the, the, the opening, closing door, and the way that, that it was scene edited. Was was difficult to watch because we see the the disintegration of of his character. And then it switches. The there's a whole emotional upheaval. It switches over to the woman who's now angry and yelling. Because we see the man he's bro- broken down and uh he's he's just like losing it. And then it switches to the woman who's now angry. It's like polar opposites fighting against each other in the scene. It was difficult to watch as a family, yeah, breaking apart. But I didn't understand, or more so, like, I was trying to figure out who's the, well, like, who are we supposed to be feeling for right Right. now? Are we supposed to be feeling for him or for her? And I I was kind of torn, and there was a, a conflict just watching it. Yeah, and I think that's what makes that scene real like it it makes it as realistic as most anything that i've seen family related wise in a movie because it didn't pull its punches 
You know, it had the kid was screaming like "cry baby, cry baby," and all the mean. In all the meantime, too, you had the the editing with the door opening and closing, and you would edit. You'd see him pointing, and then he'd go back to the bathtub. You'd see um, Terry Gar, fantastic performance, by the ways, and she was like screaming, and he's in the bathtub. He's breaking down. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a very it's a very tough scene that you don't see in tentpole commercial movies, which. At the time, that's what Close Encounters was. It was a commercial, meant to be a big blockbuster success. And all the while, it still has... Well, well, well today with the cynicism, there is still cynicism today. And the cover-ups. And evil lives to strike back. But movie-going audiences are still able to leave the theater feeling good. As they were back in 1977. Mm-hmm. So, um... And it's one of those movies, too, where I always argue that with the beginning of Jaws, you have movies like Jaws, Star Wars, which also came out in 77, yep. Close Encounters, Raiders of the Lost Ark. They changed the whole way in which movies can be entertaining. There was still a hint of cynicism in those movies. The cover-up of the government at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, because it ends up in that warehouse, right? Yeah. In Star Wars, Darth Vader lives. To, you know, the Empire Strikes Back. Obviously, in this movie, uh, government cover-up. But yet, they were still entertaining movies. And audiences started to feel good about going to the movies. Because they didn't. the movies didn't necessarily end on a down note. You know, there wasn't the cynicism. There wasn't so much of the backlash. We were getting out of that Vietnam War era, Watergate. And when we went into the 80s, it really was about packaging and making entertainment and fun Mm -hmm. movies so that people can go and laugh and have a good time and close encounters i think is a part of that set of the 70s that changed helped change the way movie audiences looked at movies and they were striving for it hence the movies that i talked about became huge they also were very good movies (laughs) yeah successful on their own you want to talk a little bit about the writing steven spielberg not really known for his his writing Mm -hmm. but he he does it but uh, he he got sole credit for writing the script, but it was yep. also uh, assisted by Paul Schrader, John Hill, David Geiler, mm-hmm. um, Hal Barwood, Matthew Robbins, and Jerry Benson, who, uh, Belson, sorry, who all contributed to the screenplay in, yeah. in different aspects of it. But um, it, it was really Steve Spielberg who penned it. Was this. his idea? Yep. Yeah, it was. Uh, this was his baby, and uh, it was something that uh, uh, he was thinking about while making Jaws, and 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 before. And how can I make this movie? But first, he had to get out of making Jaws. He had to get out alive because he he had a, he almost had a mental breakdown during Jaws, and it was what do I do? And he even says, "Had I not done Jaws first, this movie would have been." the hardest movie I've ever did. He goes, but being that I did Jaws before this, mm-hmm. this movie was easy. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, this movie was like, I'm on terra firma. I don't have cast and crew throwing up a seasickness. I'm not pitching to the right. To, uh, I don't I, have props yeah. drowning in the ocean. You know? <laughs> yeah. So he, he just claims, he goes, Close Encounters was a much better movie going, a, a movie experience for him to make. And I really think that it set him Apart too, because 
you know, he got one of his one of his icons, Francois Truffaut, in this movie. Yeah, Truffaut, yeah. who is an amazing director in and of an himself. Actor. Yes, an yeah. actor. And, and I I personally know him more for his directing, right? But for for an actor, because I'm watching this, I was like, that has to be Truffaut because I don't really recognize him like physically as right. an actor. But I remember watching it and thinking to myself, it's like that has to be Truffaut. He's the only French man. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and it has to be him. again as an eleven-year-old, I didn't know who the hell he was. As eleven years old, give me a break. Um, <laughs> but it wasn't until later on that you realize what a big deal it is. In fact, it was the first and only time he was um, in a movie as an actor where he didn't direct himself, and it was in the states, and mm-hmm. he liked the script. Um, so he I think came on board. Yeah, I think that's great because it also shows the international. Um, demographics for this film because he was a great director around that same time too so it added more credibility to the the European countries as well to watch this yeah and and let me see if you agree too his presence in the film is one of like he's a sympathetic character because he understands the plight of Roy Neary and 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 like Melinda Dillon and all the the twelve people that are that are pulled to go to Devil's Mountain, as he's the head of this UFO project, and he believes, and it's trying to get, convince military people and such, and he sticks up for those people, and and he does it in a way. It's like the sympathetic way. It's the way he speaks. It's his, it's his look. It's his. It's that character's demeanor. I don't think anybody could have played it as well. Other than him. That's true. I thought it was a really great performance because it showed that he's just another man just searching for answers. Yes. It's not out of militia, or like um, um, malevolence or anything like that. And um, I, I like the fact that he was kind of questioning the government, not in a mean way or malicious way. It was more uh, like he was just searching for answers. And he was right. asking all different types of people. Right. Um, I, I felt like he was just the voice of the audience trying to get the answers yeah. to yeah, and and he just he was just so good, and I could watch this movie over and over, and I'll key in on certain parts of his performance. But I always loved when he says, "What are you here for? What are you looking for?" And then he goes, "I envy you, Mister Nitty," uh, you know, and you could tell, like he did. And then I was like, "Why couldn't he get to go up uh, <laughs> right. into the ship?" But it's not that character's story. Um, but he was—he's—he's he's fantastic. He's, he's mostly the reason why he brought everyone together. He's yes. kind of like the through line with everybody, yeah. the thread um, mm-hmm. that gets everybody literally in one location. So he's that guy. Yeah, he's that guy, and he's—he's he's fantastic at it. We can talk. Let's, let's talk casting um, too, because Richard Dreyfus. Okay. Yeah. Spielberg tells Dreyfus about the movie while they're Another doing role. Jaws. Yep. Yeah, and 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 Spielberg and Dreyfus immediately says he's like thinking I'm Roy Neary. He goes I'm Roy Neary, and he starts talking to him about it, and he starts giving him ideas for it. And all the while, Spielberg's going, "Oh, you know, I'm going after Steve McQueen," which I have a funny Steve McQueen. Oh, I'm going after Al Pacino. I'm going after Dustin Hoffman. And Richard Dreyfus is like, "No, no. Oh, he's no. He he's not going to do it. He's too much of a no. He's too much of a no." And he finally said to him, he goes, you can't go with Dustin Hoffman or Al Pacino. He's like, none of them are childlike. Yeah. None of them can be a kid. And Spielberg looked at him and said, 
you got the job. <laughs> right. I think that's good campaigning on his part uh, because uh, Dreyfus himself says, I launched myself into a campaign to get the part. I would walk by Steve's office and, and say stuff like, El Pacino has no sense of humor. Right. <laughs> or Jack Nicholson is too crazy. I eventually convinced him to cast me. So that's what Jake. So, like, yeah, sometimes you have to, like, plant those seeds. Like, no, they're not good Who's enough. Who's putting them down? I love yeah. that. Uh, I love but, that. But, like, to prove that, he, he might be better at that point. Right. I like, that's, that's actually pretty funny. Yeah, I think it's pretty funny, too. And I also found it amazing that actually Steve McQueen was Spielberg's first choice. Yeah. And he sent him the script, and, and and Steve McQueen called him back and said, I love your script. Let's talk. He goes, I want to talk to you about this. And he goes, let's meet at a bar. Now, according to Steven Spielberg, he claims that it's the very, very first ever time he was in a bar because he wasn't a big drinker. Mm. And he said he nursed one beer while McQueen was, like, <laughs> like knocking beers back, him. right? And he said he was so cool. In fact... He said Steve McQueen at this bar even broke up a fight. So oh, we wow. got to see Steve McQueen in Fisica. That just shows how often he goes to bars. Right. So <laughs> then he's sitting down and Steve McQueen says, I love the script, but he respectfully declines the role. And he goes, and Steven's like, well, why? He goes, you, I thought you liked it. He goes, I do. He goes, but at the end you have this scene. I can't. He goes, I don't know why. I can't cry on camera. It was real, like, I can't, it's not that I'm too cool to do it. I just, I, I, I've never been able to cry on camera. And Spielberg was like, well, I'll change, I'll rewrite it. He goes, you can't rewrite that scene. That scene is the heart of the movie. He goes, when I read that scene on the script, when I was reading the script, I almost cried. I could cry reading the script, but when you say action, I just, I, that's my hang up. Yeah. Well, he understood. They remain friends after that. Steve McQueen said he did a great script and everything, and hence his his quest continued. But he came across Richard Dreyfus, who was fantastic as Roy Neary. I, I think he did a great job because he, <clears throat> I I think Roy was just shows like he's that everyday man. He's a family man. He's a the, that relatable guy that all this is happening to him, and he doesn't know how to do it. But you're rooting for him throughout the, the whole do. film. And and like you you can see the parts where he's frustrated and he can't like he himself can't explain what he just witnessed or what he feels or what's happening to him afterwards. But like you're watching him throughout this entire journey try to find the, the same answers that right. he's he's searching for. Yeah. And um, I really thought he he had a lot of shining moments that we'll definitely talk about. Yeah, absolutely, he did. And, you know, it's just, again, for as an actor coming off of Jaws and then working on this movie, and then he worked again with Spielberg and always. Uh, he actually worked with Terry Garr again in a great, I'll have to look it up on IMDb, a great horse racing movie. It's a comedy. And Terry Garr was in it, who played his wife. Girlfriend, and there again, their chemistry I think is really good together. Um, but again, coming off of Jaws, coming into Close Encounters, uh, he was just two different characters, and each character is phenomenal. Um, and you're right, the way he grapples with he too has this wonder of it all, but at the same time, he's so tortured because why, why, why am I drawn to what am I drawn to? I can't figure this out, but but I, the important line is, this means something. This is important. This means something. Why am I here? Right. 
and that too is part of that quest in Close Encounters. I think the I think the most funniest part uh, about his character was uh, when like he was he was kind of sunburned because of the, mm-hmm. the temperature. Uh, completely shifted and only like ha- it affected half of his body. And I think one of the funniest lines in this film was when the son was like, "You look like a fifty-fifty bar." You look like a fifty. <laughs> <laughs> I lost it. It was hysterical. <laughs> Uh, the best line. It's a great. <laughs> See, it's funny because like that is brilliant. <laughs> my my my. No, it the, still makes me. To laugh. me, the funniest line uh, in that movie and and the fifty fifty bar is great. <laughs> um, is when um, he's he's uh, in. <clears throat> Uh, at the base of Devil's Tower, and he's being interviewed. He's being interrogated, let's face it. Mm-hmm. And uh, Francois Truffaut shows him a picture of Devil's Tower. He goes, do you recognize this? He goes, yeah, I got one just like it in my living room. <laughs> <laughs> I always just love that because that sarcasm was like, what yeah, am I doing here? Like, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> you look like a 50-50 bar. But the way he played that too, you know, is, uh, again, it wasn't like out of fear. It was like... What is this? I saw something. You know, and when his kids slap him on the ass uh, as he's brushing his teeth to take the picture of his half and half face. Like that that again is 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 prime Richard Dreyfus. And then uh obviously he goes on to movies like the the, the Goodbye Girl, which he's fantastic uh, yeah. in. Right. I mean he's he's Phenomenal. great in that movie. <laughs> That's and, great yeah, yeah. So he's had plenty of roles, but he got to cut his teeth with Steven Spielberg and his two some of his biggest his yeah. Jaws, which redefined movie going. And, Jaws to beef all up with Close Encounters. Close Encounters. Boy, tough, 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 tough. I know. Mr. Dreyfus. But good job. Good yeah, job. good for him. So, um, you know, and then when you have, oh, the hardest part, I guess, was, was hiring, uh, Jillian was hiring Melinda Dillon. They didn't hire that, that woman until like a week before she was supposed to start. Uh, That's really late into production. Extremely late into production, and she really had no idea what was really going on. Uh, And she's thrust, and I believe she even got a nomination out of it. She was really good as the single mother grappling with her son's abduction Mm -hmm. and then trying to figure out, why why am I being drawn here? So I've got this, my son, uh, who... The other fascinating thing about the movie is the son had the tones, the five tones down, where yeah. she had the mountain. She had Devil's Tower. Devil's you know? Tower. Um, and that was the... Okay, so we're talking about Devil's Tower. That was the thing that, like, watching it questioned me, and I think that's just uh, how editing has so much evolved in the last 40 years because we see Roy and and uh, Jillian, they're, like, throughout the whole film, they keep... They keep building the structure, the Devil's Tower structure. And they keep saying, dropping lines like, I'm envisioning this. This is what I'm seeing. And as the audience, just watching him, like, how, where, does it, where is this image come from? Right. Because I think with modern-day editing, you can see, like, you can have those inserts of, like, flashes or, like, any dreams or something that's, like, actually affecting them that the audience can also see what they're seeing. Uh, but they just drop the line that they're seeing it, and we yet have not seen it at all visually well but they too don't know that it's devil's tower like and i think by doing that it takes really takes away from the mystery because he's seeing this in mashed potatoes he's seeing this in garbage in garbage he's seeing this like all over the place and he he see he's seeing it in his shaving cream 
and he's asking people like, what does this look like to you? Like what? And, and there's a piece that's missing. And so as he's crafting it, whether it's in mashed potatoes or, or not. And then at the end, well, well when he sort of breaks, Chop and off he, top. <laughs> well, and he has the breakdown and uses his kitchen and living room. Even then he's not getting it right. And neither is, uh, neither is Melinda Dill- Dillon's character. Jillian. Jillian. They're not putting, the, they're not taking the top off, so to speak, mm-hmm. to make it look that way. And as an audience member, you're going, well, I, I don't even know what that looks like. I don't know. And then when you see it on TV, and again, I, I'm not sure as an 11 year old, I even knew what the hell Devil's Tower was. But right. when you see that scene with Walter Cronkite talking about the evacuation, and you see. And you look at it, and you're like going, that's what they're looking for. I think the epiphany far outshines like having, having seen what those images would be because they, they themselves, they don't know what it is, and they can't get it right until he sees the TV or he pulls off the top. And he's like, and then oh, realizes what it is. Get a map, and he's always getting lost. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, But the Devil's Tower aspect, too, was something that they – Joe Owls, who's the production designer, who also worked on Jaws. And I believe he went on to direct the the wonderful Jaws 3 in 3D. But he was scouring the country looking for a landmark. And Spielberg was like, well, do we use Monument Valley? What are we going to do? And when Joe Owls found Devil's Tower, he was like, this is perfect. He goes, this is great. And... And it makes sense. It was like a location within America, because right, right now the the situation was like the the characters that we were following they were in America. Yeah, we had Truffaut's character who like kind of represented the rest of the world, but it made sense that it like it all came to this one right. point in America. Yeah, yeah you know, and, and and it became iconic. You know, because it of it, really, like it was used in the it's advertising. Not in a, every poster that yep. you see for Close Encounters. Yep. And so, uh, yeah, and I got one just like it in my living room. So, um, <laughs> hopefully, you know, not made out of garbage. <laughs> no, 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 in mud. Um, cool. uh, Carrie, Carrie Guffey, who played Barry, was three years old at the time, three going on to four. He was found in like a school play, and his, his, his niece. Or whatever found him, and it was down to he and another actor, child, and Spielberg was like, "Carries the one. He's he's the child," and um, you know, and it goes to Spiel. You know, we how many times have we talked about kids in movies, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't like to pick on bad performances by a kid in a movie. I always blame the director because he's a kid. Right, like this. But in fairness, there are kids who can who are great at acting and can break your hearts no matter what. They age can. They are. Well, and, and they will have a gift. But I also say too that the director has to coax it mm-hmm. out of them, and much like he did with little Carrie Duffy, who earned the nickname "One Take Carrie" because every scene he filmed, they did in one take. Now Spielberg manipulated him in certain ways. Um, but it's sort of funny because the scene where uh, the aliens first come into the house and Carrie comes downstairs, he sees the refrigerator, all of the mess is all mm-hmm. outside. Well, Spielberg had two, like, two almost like boxes. And so Carrie looks up and they, they lift up one of the boxes and there was somebody dressed up as a clown. And he was like, 
that gets a smile on his face. And then they lift the other box up, and it was a person in a gorilla suit. And that's why he stopped and stepped back. And then when they started straight, the guy took off his his mask, mm-hmm. and he saw that it was one of the crew that he got along with, and then he smiles again. That's the genius of Spielberg in getting a three-year-old to act and to react. Yeah. And uh, the wonderful scene where the little boy says, Toys! He, Spielberg... Had a box. Oh, like, those like, toys, like, man. Well, he had a, he had a, like a, a, a Christmas gift box. Mm-hmm. And while the scene's going on, he started to slowly unwrap it. Slowly unwrap it. And what did it unearth? But toys. So that's why he goes, toys! <laughs> <laughs> and you go, that's, that, that's how Spielberg works with kids. There's a wonderful behind-the-scenes photograph of little Carrie looking through the camera. And he's got that wonder of a child, like, oh my God, this is so cool. He's three, four-year-old boy. That's how Spielberg got to work with kids. Look at his, look at the kids' performance between Henry Thomas, Drew Barrymore, and E.T. E.T., yeah, right? absolutely. Even the kids that were in Jaws, uh, you know, how he works with them, he he understands them. Mm-hmm. And if he wants to perform, he knows what, he knows how to, he knows how to coax that performance out of them. And yeah, I think it's in beautiful. real time, um, reveal like that that's you know that shows the creativity he right. has um, yeah. to get a real-time reaction yeah so, i mean and like no one would really think that but spielberg did he does that's yeah. why he's a genius and remember the mashed potato scene i mentioned i don't know yeah. if you caught the line where the little girl goes there's a dead fly in my mashed potatoes well there was actually a dead fly in the girl's <laughs> mashed potatoes yeah. and so they 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 kept going, but they're all trying not to laugh because that wasn't scripted. Mm. She's just like, oh, there's a dead fly in my mashed potatoes. And they were very hard trying not to laugh. To me, that's hysterical. Flies and champagne is bad luck. Kids <laughs> will say. The darnest things. The darnest yeah. things. <laughs> Interesting. So, Interesting. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's really cool. And I think Spielberg uh, did a great job with the acting or with all, and directing all the actors and getting that, the whatever performances he needed out of all of them, let alone having the visual creativity already of what he was envisioning on screen. Which is amazing because he also gets, I don't know if you paid attention to the credits at the end, he also gets a credit for visual co- concept yeah. of the movie. So he had an idea as to what a lot of the spaceships were going to, what he thought they should look like. Yeah, well, let's get into the production aspect of it and and the look. Yeah, I mean, for example, we're talking about, let's talk about the mothership. His original concept of the mothership is that it would just be all black. And that it was going to be like almost like a black hole in the sky. And when they were in India filming the... um, the scene where everybody points. Like, points up, which again, I cannot stress enough, folks, try to see this on the big screen because that scene with the way that it's shot with the man up on, it's a, like, you know, Lawrence of Arabia, the, like this right. is Richard Attenborough kind of thing. <laughs> Epic. <laughs> and then they go like, where was it from? And all the fingers point up. And it's just the way that the camera is, it, it's fantastic. But when they're in India filming that, he found this industrial and you know smokestacks whatever and he's like huh well that's a really great concept what if i can have that and then he based the bottom 
off of the San Fernando lights at nighttime. That's the valley. Yeah. So for you people in California, whenever you're looking at the San Fernando, if you're ever up in Universal and you get to look out at the San Fernando, yeah, that's no. the bottom of the ship. And when you, yeah, or if you're heading south on the four, right, four, or four five, five, you can see the <laughs> at night. You yeah. can see the whole valley in lights. You can see the bottom of the mothership. It's pretty cool. That's that's it. And I'm like, that's pretty brilliant. That's yeah. And then, but getting that vision onto the mothership with the lights being what they are and getting double, Douglas Trumbull and getting the special effects team involved. All in all, when all is said and done, that thing weighed 200 pounds. Mm. Weighed 200 pounds. Wow. To, and to move it was no small task. I can imagine. <laughs> I mean, and I, I liked the different <clears throat> looks of, because when we, throughout the whole uh, you know, movie, when we see the lights and stuff. Yes. It, I mean, it's not like a very nefarious type of light. It's just like, hey, what is this flying towards me? Right. Um, and I liked it. It gave it kind of a mystical aspect, but not really a scary aspect. Mm-hmm. It was, they were pretty lights. They were blue and pink and purple. You know, like Ice the, cream. Those are colors. <laughs> yeah, those are colors you're not afraid of. If it was right. red or yellow, mm-hmm. that kind of gives off that danger type of warning. Um just like the symbolism of color. Right. And I think that was another visual sign of why these aliens aren't as scary as you think they would be, considering yeah. their colors are pink. I mean, come right. on. Right. And, and yeah. Spielberg, to your credit, to yeah. your point, it, one of his favorite scenes in the movie is when Barry opens up the door and you see that orange light going by, but the, it was like three lights. Mm-hmm. And he's like, to me, that's my favorite scene. He goes, because the kid's... Kids are drawn to the light. And here's this beautiful, like, this colorful light. We're scared as an adult. But he's an innocent kid. Kids don't know. And the other thing, when you when you think about lighting and lights, right? Mm-hmm. What does Spielberg do? He, he sets up a, I'm not going to call it a gag, but he sets up a scene where Roy Neary is lost. It's at the beginning of the movie. And he's off to the side of the road. And he has his map. And headlights come up behind him. And he waves the guy around. The guy goes around him. And the guy's like, you're in the middle of the road. And he goes, all right, turkey. And drives off. Drives a little more. Stops again. And we see headlights coming up. It's like, it's another car. And he, and he waves him off. But instead of going around, those lights go up. Yeah, no, I like that. So he uses familiarity of lights. Something that we're familiar with but he has him do something else he has him mm. levitate they're like oh something is behind him such an amazing scene that leads to that whole scene inside his truck his which tr- they used on a they did it was a dancing on the ceiling fred astaire uh, kind of they lock a I camera down movie yeah so and good that's how they just a simple practical effect mm-hmm. and on screen and on the big screen with the sound it's just you go well, what kind of special effects do they do that? Oh, well, now Fred Astaire was doing it. <laughs> he was dancing, you know, and, and so did, did Lionel and, Richie. And tap shoes. Yeah. Right. So that's like, that is the wherewithal uh, of, of those practical effects. And then you hire on people like Douglas Trumbull, who mm. was a genius at doing special effects and lighting. He went on to do uh, things like Blade Runner. And if you, if you notice Blade Runner, the spinner cars... They're lighting and the lens flaring. It's like that that whole film like is just the scene itself or like the, the whole city itself is just pure lights. Yeah. And when you think he even uses a sound drop like 
There's a scene where a ship flies by. It's beautiful. Big lens flare. Who else uses lens flare a lot? J.J. Abrams. J.J. Abrams. Who did J.J. Abrams work for? And then Spielberg. Spielberg. And he did Super 8. And and if you watch Super 8, and I, and I urge you to do this after watching Close Who Encounters. also produced. Yeah. And he lifts a lot of scenes from Close Encounters and puts them in Super 8. Which is sort of, you know, it's it's how they work together. But it's and part I enjoyed of the Super Eight too. Me too. I feel like a lot of people enjoy that film, and you you can kind of definitely see the see the, the, the similar themes um, and where he got his uh, creativity from that. But going back to Douglas Trumbull, an, another thing that he had done that we've seen in movies since, especially in the eighties, um, the clouds, the cloud sequence. Oh, they yeah. were basically squirting white paint into water and filming it and going around. Uh, that effect can be also seen in like Raiders of the Lost Ark in the movie Poltergeist, uh, where the clouds are coming around. They didn't know what the hell they were <laughs> doing, and like coming up with that is is really something quite amazing. Um, and as a practical effect, to me, anyways. It just doesn't get old. Like, you see this on the big screen, and there's nothing that I can point to. It's not like watching a movie, an alien invasion movie, say, in the 50s, with flying saucers, where you can sort of see the string. Or you know that the camera was locked down, mm-hmm. and they're, like, bringing the things by. This was very fluid. The way the ships moved and tumbled and turned and the choreography used for the ships. They each had their own character, including the little red Tinkerbell dot. Yeah, and even with the music too, which we'll we'll definitely get to. We have to. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I I would I love to talk about the the abduction scene because I think mm-hmm. this was by far me personally one of the best scenes, if not in my personal opinion, the the best scene in the film. I think just from a filmmaking standpoint, mm-hmm. it is so solid all around. The acting, the lighting, the editing, the sound design, yeah. the sound mixing, the cinematography. Like, literally, this, just isolate the scene. Yeah. It is so good, and it's one of the reasons why this movie is iconic. Yeah, and, and it's a terrifying scene. It's horrifying. And, and it showed things that, again, as a movie-going audience... To show screws unscrewing themselves, like going mm-hmm. up. Number one, you how do they do that? Because you're not thinking. And coupled with the sound editing, yeah. Coupled with the music, the lighting, the lighting and the smoke. That like when <clears throat> she would open curtains and stuff, and it was just bright lights mm-hmm. right at her. Yeah, you can't see what's happening. Yeah, uh, the world's uh, the, the world's first uh, uh, Roomba vacuum. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. what I go. Hey, it's the it's the first Roomba. Hey, um, that. That sound effect. Uh, oh, how about the oven and the stove and the red? Yeah, the, the red, red hot and then opens up and talking about color symbolism. It's like that scene was red and orange. Those are warning colors that n- you know that danger yeah. is upon you. Mm-hmm. And I think it was so good because and for as long as that scene is, I mean, it's a good solid like what five seven minutes yeah, sequence. Yeah. You watch her move from room to room throughout that entire house, and she has l- literally nowhere to go. And I, I think you can see that that slow uh, progression of her like right. really starting off oh, just okay, but now like completely terrified and shutting the windows is and, oh. useless um, yep. throughout the whole. Film. Yeah, it's a very terrifying scene. As an eleven-year-old, 
it, it literally did scare the bejesus out of me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a little boy gets abducted. Like, it, it's yeah. that's horror. She gets kidnapped by the aliens. And at that point, you're going, these people aren't good. These people right. aren't good. And if Why it are wasn't you stealing for, children? Right. And when you see a France, Francois Truffaut's character who's sort of kind of sticking up for him, he wants to know why, but you go, they stole a kid. They took a kid from his mother and they did it in such a horrific way. Vacuums are just turning on and running around. Right. We got screws coming up. Oh, the scene from the fireplace? Uh, yeah. And she's like trying to grab and grab shut the it. thing. Yeah. Like, you and don't I, know. I love that shot because you see the camera actually <clears throat> moving down the chimney and you know that something is actually after her. Yeah. And, uh, so oh, bad. I have to say, like, too, if you were able, look, if it's still out near you in a theater, and you haven't seen it, you got to go because they do something pretty special. They have a 10-minute featurette prior to the movie. And in that featurette, they show behind-the-scenes clips, like Steven Spielberg's home movies of that scene. So you actually get to see the floor and the men underneath the floor that they built unscrewing the screws and Spielberg watching through his camera going, cut, that's perfect, that's great, that's what I wanted. And then when they're doing the fireplace scene. You see yeah. them and they're like dropping the camera down and then they have people on the sides throwing whatever. filament or whatever, like yeah. dust and whatever coming down. And he goes, all right, stop the camera there. He goes, all right, action again. And then the camera goes farther camera down. I want to see the hand. And, and and then like, then to watch the movie, you go, wow. Like again, 77 practical effects at their best. And it's artists working together to, to, to construct one of the most thrilling scenes of movies of that time, the way it was edited and the sound. And then when he finally gets taken away, everything sort of kind of quiets down and stops, and she comes running out. Outside, and you see it all just like, it's like a big <clears throat> storm yes. that just like moved past the house, and you're just chasing it, Yeah. and she she literally can't catch it. Yeah. It's like, you know, when a thunderstorm rolls in, it's scary for like, Ben it's right at the location, right. but then eventually moves on. And she's watching this recede, and she's <laughs> watching the lights in the clouds. Go away. And yeah. Yeah, it's, it's. The way that scene begins, it with that scene alone has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's yeah. It's like so if great. you don't, for whatever reason, you don't want to watch this movie, just watch this scene, and I'll convince you otherwise. Mm-hmm. Like literally, this is one of the best scenes in just film history. Yeah, in and, it, and it shows to Spielberg's genius of constructing. A, a major action type of sequence and doing it in a way that that's both artful, entertaining, and thrilling, and very, very scary. If you're if you're an eleven year old kid and now is older, mm-hmm. you get to watch it. You get to marvel at, wow, that's pretty cool. And how it's claustrophobic, and then it ends in the big vista because she's out in the far, you know, she's out in the sticks where they live in Muncie in Indiana. Yeah, it's a wonderful, wonderful scene. Is there another scene you wanted to talk about or? Well, I mean, we could talk about the the actual ending, the the last twenty minute sequence scene that, like, what it all boils down to, you know, the meat and potatoes of the <laughs> entire film. When everyone just finally gets to Devil's Tower, right? They and I mean, we could t- talk about it from the beginning. The the whole interaction with music communication, right. I really enjoyed. I mean, Sean yeah. Williams is legend. Yeah, in this. <sighs> Yeah, we'll the, talk. The let, let's talk about his score because I think it's, it's so integral 
to this movie. It's as it's as, as integral as it is in Jaws, and it's very integral here because over here he's got a he's got a flip flop. He's got a switch from the scene, the abduction scene, which is a very horrific scene, right? Mm-hmm. And then he's got to go in the end. You know, then he's got to do certain sound cues. So he uses Wish Upon a Star, but he's also coming up with the five tones, which has become so iconic. And this is where, when Williams works with Spielberg, this is where they're genius. You know, Star Wars aside, when you look at, you know, because that was with George Lucas, and it's a very iconic theme. Right, you just saw John Williams, right? I did. Right, okay, so we we were actually supposed to talk about Close Encounters last Friday. Yeah, and last I messed Friday, that up, folks. Yeah, I, it's okay. My my apologies. Last Friday, um, literally a week ago from today, I saw John Williams perform at the Hollywood Bowl, and it was everything and more that I wanted it to be. It was so great because I had watched Close Encounters literally the night before, so within. Probably 20 hours, I watched the movie, and then I saw John Williams live. And they actually, that was the first score that he performed. Was Was it? Close Encounters of Third Kind. And I heard the five tones. I was like, yep, I know what this is. Yep. Yep. It's and great. It, it, it's so good. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's an amazing uh, soundtrack. Uh, again, folks, I think you can find this on your iTunes or uh, Spotify. Look up Close Encounters of the Third Kind, an anniversary edition, um, special edition soundtrack. Not that it's from the special edition version. And it has all the tracks, and they're pretty much in order, uh, and they're in their full length, and it's wonderful um, to listen to. But the five tones, now I learned something. John Williams wanted seven. Because apparently seven seven beats, seven tones is a song, okay? Mm-hmm. Four tones is like a fragment. Four tones is a bar. <clears throat> right, and five and tones bar. is like in the middle of no man's land. But Spielberg wanted five simple tones. And he also felt, Spielberg, that music is something that everybody can relate to. So why not it be a musical type of tone that people could communicate with? Which makes sense when you think about it. Because we are very auditory, you know, based. We hear things and if we hear music, we can. And you can tell from the tone of music. Just take his score. Right. It, it can go from menacing from Jaws to adventurous. As like we're hunting a shark, we're out fishing. Jaws in two notes compared to Close Encounters in five. Right. And if you think about it, I can understand why John Williams wanted four or seven. No, he seven, wanted seven. Yeah, seven is a song, but four is a chord. You can yeah. have four different notes in one chord. Yeah, and Spielberg was like, "No, I want this to be five. And they, they, they worked together to try to come up with the five notes. And in fact, they even went as far as to uh, consult with a mathematician. <laughs> A mathematician say, take all the notes. How many, how many things can we get with five notes? And then it was, I believe it was John Williams who did the bing, 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 bing. Mm-hmm. And, and then it became iconic. And it's yet another John Williams. Like when you hear that, Close Encounters. I mean, yeah. it, it went so far that it was even, it was even referenced in, in James Bond's Moonraker. Like those five tones were used as a key code to get into a laboratory. So it, it's gone that, like, 
that's what John Williams and Steven Spielberg are able to collaborate with. And the music at the end, um, also, the whole communication when they say, okay, it's on automatic, and they get away from the from the synthesizer, the organ. Yep. And it's just, just communicating. It. Oh, and I got my little light bar here because it was tones and lights. Oh, there you go. It's a pin. It's a pin. And <laughs> I don't – the other thing that was – that I noticed, this is the first time I ever noticed this. We are taught, even with music, we read from left to right. Yeah. If you noticed in the bars, they went from right to left. Mm-hmm. If you noticed on that, the soundboard, so we'll, we'll call it, or the light board, we'll call yeah, it. The light board. It went from, yeah, it went from boop, 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 boop. It went right, to, which is foreign, like, well, at least to us, because this is the way we're taught to read. Um, and this is an alien form. And I was like, I wonder if that was, because I couldn't find out if that was a conscious decision instead of going left to right to do it right to left. And it was just something that I noticed in the movie because it was in such a big freaking screen. Yeah, it was awesome. I mean, that's interesting. I mean, the English language is left to right. But, you know, uh, I believe uh, over in Asia, they, they actually read it right Yeah, and they can right go up and left. down. Yeah, it was exactly. just interesting. It's literally backwards. That that's, how they're, that's how they were interpreting music or musical mm-hmm. tones. Um, trivia about that, too. I'm sure you picked it up. But there is... There's a theme. <laughs> there is a theme that 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 John Williams lifted. <laughs> that's on the mothership towards yeah, the end from Jaws. Yep, yeah. we hear the the Jaws theme. I, I yeah, I heard it. Um, it was funny because you had sent Phil and I a message about like go right. look for it, and then I was like, there it is. I yep. found it. Um, and there were two. I liked it. There were two sound lifts from Jaws. That one was the other. And I told film Phil too. I said your mission should you decide to accept is. There were two film drops. There were two sound drops that Spielberg lifted from Jaws, and he put into the movie. One of them is obvious, and that's the one. Did you? Well, you have to be. You have to be. A, Only a, noticed an it at the end. Idiot like me. Um, the other sound drop, and it's not a musical cue, but it is a literal sound drop. Uh, was it when he was actually playing the piano? No. Okay. Because that, that's where I thought he played when, when the kid was just like slamming keys on the piano. No, it's the scene. It's I call it the Lawrence of Arabia train scene when Roy uh, er, the they come around. up and the the train and people are being evacuated onto the train and there's mm-hmm. a lot of chaos and Roy's looking for um, I always forget her name um, Melinda Dillon's character and Jillian. they're so Jillian and they're separated by the horde of people who are trying to get onto the train. There is a, okay, there is a sound uh, in Jaws during the 4th of July, the beach scene, while people are being evacuated out of the water. Right. Okay, it was the fake shark. There is a scene uh, where camera is set and a woman is screaming and there's a helicopter going by. You just hear the helicopter and it's, it's, it's right in that scene. In that, it, he takes that sound drop and he puts it into... That same sound, and you can hear the woman screaming as well, and it's the helicopter going by. He took that from Jaws. There you go. Yeah, and he does that sort of kind of often with his movies. Um, but that's a little cool little... There's some trivia for you if you pay attention Very to your neat. Jaws and Steven Spielberg movies. Very, yeah, I, I think the music and the sound was great in this film. If you ever get the chance to see John Williams, do it, because the man is a legend. Now, did you know that that runway scene... Um, 
So they had the Devil's Tower, and then they had to build this set, which was supposedly behind the Devil's Tower, the, the runway. At the time, at the time, it was the biggest, it was the biggest set built, American set built for a movie. Handmade. And handmade, well, they actually, they were looking for warehouses and things, but they couldn't find anything that could open up. Like, there could only be, like, three walls, and they, they can shoot out from. So, in an Air Force base uh, in Mobile, Alabama, they found a disused hangar that had been used for dirigibles, blimps. Ah, uh, there you go. And it fit their needs so that they can build this runway, and they could have the open space. And it was 300 foot by 300 foot, 300 feet, I should say. So they can use all of this room and space and film out. And but it was a blimp hanger deck. Isn't that cool? The things I like you that. Learn. Yeah. That is pretty neat. Yeah. So no one would think that. Um another interesting thing you might want to know about that scene too. So when the ship is going back and forth or they're trying to communicate. And they go and then the mothership goes boom boom. The scene where Roy Neary is down and it blows out the glass. And the tower thing yeah. and the observation thing. Uh, Columbia said we don't because they needed the candied glass to do it, and they needed about five pounds of it, the sugar glass. And Columbia said we don't, we don't have the money for it because we really don't. We have to cut that out. But Spielberg wanted it so much he paid for that scene uh, out of pocket, his own money, because he thought that that scene it just said so much. So I was like, oh, that's cool. He put his own money up. He put his money where his mouth is. They made the candy glass. Looks great. And they one shot. Didn't even need it all. See? So. Come on, Columbia. Yeah. Have a little bit more faith <laughs> in him. All right. Uh, that's really great. And so this film became, was actually a box office success. Knowing that the budget was only like. $20 million. $20 million. Uh, Spielberg went over a bit with the original budget, but I mean it became a financial success. No, absolutely, and and we talked about this on uh, Meet the Movie Press a little bit. What's really fantastic and amazing: uh, domestic lifetime gross is one hundred and thirty-four million. Okay, now this isn't adjusted. This is the uh, domestic gross, right? But here's the thing that you need to really key in on: its widest release. It's it at its widest release. It was 650 theaters. That's, that's not it. a lot. Not a lot. That's, that's considered an art house film yeah. release in today's market. 650 to pull in 134. Or actually, it was 116, and then with various re-releases and stuff, 134. But to do that kind of business at your widest, 650. I mean, today we're looking at movies that are 4,000 locations right this wasn't a time and, even, and this is what go ahead oh sorry like even movies that are 600 plus theaters they barely hit million you know i mean like in today's uh adjusted yeah they're not I gonna mean, that's ridiculous. It's ridiculous so that just shows like how successful that film was if you actually you know do the math, which I'm not going to. There's a split it up with 600 to get millions of dollars in, in that aspect. Yeah, and just think about Jaws itself was the very first movie to broach or to breach 100 million, and that was only released at 500, and that was 
that was a ton. So now he goes to 650. And again, yeah, sort of, to, just to help put some things in perspective, and I, I know, I'm old. Okay, I get it. Uh, they weren't doubling these movies up in a theater. You weren't having multiplexes with 15, 20 screens. You were having multiplexes that might have six. One, two, maybe six, maybe eight. Eight was, whoa, I'm going to an eightplex, wow. But they weren't doubling up the prints. So Close Encounters was, or Star Wars, it was had one screen. That was it. Hence, that's why they were called blockbusters, because you couldn't get in. Um, it's also, it's release pattern, Columbia decided to platform it, which means they went super limited. It only opened up in two locations when it first opened. It opened up at the Cinerama Dome here in Los Angeles and the Ziegfeld Theater in New York City. The Ziegfeld, which, uh, beautiful theater, right. by the way, is, um, if, yeah, it was just, I've, I had uh, the privilege of seeing uh, one of the Star Wars movies at the Ziegfeld, and I've seen many a movie at the Cinerama Dome. There, it was selling out for weeks during weekdays. During weekdays. Wow. The movie, and that's when Columbia and they were building this groundswell because Spielberg just wanted it to go out, but it was Sony's idea. They said, "No, we're going to open it up at two. and they built up this marketing groundswell because the, the, the word of mouth was so positive on this movie too. And then when they opened it up, then it started selling out. There's no such thing as a sellout today. Like if you want to see it, which opens up this weekend, which is supposed to do gangbuster business. If you can't get into the one o'clock show, you'll get into the one fifteen. Right, Star Wars might be a sellout. <laughs> May, compared to maybe on like the IMAX screen, but if you want to go to see Star Wars Last Jedi, mm-hmm. the odds are you can probably see it opening weekend. You may not be seeing it in the biggest theater, but, but you can see it. on your twenty plex it's gonna have ten screens. Right. <laughs> so think about six hundred and fifty theaters. Locations. And 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 it doing $116 million. Well, I mean, and the ratings for this film is still doing great after a course of 40 years. It's still <clears throat> that the personal scores and you know, Rotten Tomato has it at 96, audience 85. I mean, those are huge scores. Mm-hmm. For a movie that's 40 years old. Um, and again, just being the film buff and lover that I am, for me to see it in the big screen, like, I just felt so good. I was giddy uh, to, to watch it. Um, you know, one other thing that we can talk about box office, uh, we got to talk about The Bet. The Bet. Do you know about The Bet? No. Okay, so Spielberg, Steven Spielberg and George Lucas are friends. They became friends. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, you know, they, 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 they had a bet. Spielberg and Lucas, uh, they both had these these new movies out in 77. George Lucas had Star Wars. Spielberg had Close Encounters. They each saw in each Jaws. other's movies. Yeah, right. Right. So Lucas thought, <laughs> he thought that Star Wars was going to tank. He uh, didn't think it was going to make money. Little did he and, know. And he watched, you know, and, and he'd see Jaws and he would watch Close Encounters. So the bet was, he knew that. He, Lucas felt that Spielberg's Close Encounters would break box office records like Jaws. So he offered Spielberg a friendly wager. Both agreed to give the other 2.5% of the profits of their respective films. Oh, jeez. Whoever outgrossed. That's, they said, okay. 
Lucas grossly underestimated his own movie. Spielberg was like, no way, George, I've seen Star Wars. It's huge. It's going to be huge. Way bigger than Close Encounters. Yep. And you know what? You know what's awesome about the both of them? It's awesome at the same time it's sickening. Because, um, yeah, George Lucas paid up a cool uh, 40 mil. (laughs) 2.5% of the like 40 chunk mil. for him now. But. Okay, Steven. Here's, Here here's 40 go. mil. Are we going, when are we going to Hawaii? make another Connors, Close Encounters film. <laughs> yeah, when are we going to go to Hawaii? You know? Um, but again, it's that kind of thing where I, I, I've said lightning in a bottle before. We don't see this kind of camaraderie. Uh, like, you know, we do see Guillermo del Toro, Alfonso Cuaron, and um, the gentleman who did Revenant. They're, they're uh, in the, yeah, that the, the three of them actually share their movies with one another and such, which is really cool. But we don't hear much about, you know, they don't make, or we don't know of that they're making bets. Um, yeah, like the friendship behind the scenes. Yeah, we do, it, it would be sort of kind of cool. But you also have to remember back in the 70s, like there was Francis Ford Coppola, right? There was mm-hmm. Robert Zemeckis was coming up. Um uh, uh, I can't think of his name. Um, John Milius, uh, oh, no, who wrote and directed like Red Dawn, is what yeah, he's right. most known for. Uh, Lawrence Kasdan, who like they they worked to write Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, right. these people hung together because of their passion for movies and their creativeness. You don't get that today. And then Spielberg and George Lucas. We're in Hawaii when they concocted the idea for Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, and they, and that's how they started to. That's when they collaborated together. There you go. And to me, again, it's that type of cinema because it really did come out of a passion from to, multiple creators. I mean, yeah, I, I think that's really cool to know. I mean, and this film has a legacy for for forty oh, years, absolutely. and I mean, it received. <clears throat> Numerous of Academy Awards for the 50th Academy Awards. Uh, they and they, sorry, and um, so they got nominated for eight Oscars: Best Director, Supporting Actress, Melinda Dillon, Visual Effects, Art Direction, Original Music Score, Film Editing, and Sound. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. it's yeah, it, and that was a time too where people just poo-pooing the Academy just didn't like Spielberg. Because he changed the one for cinematography. Yeah, well, Vilo Sigmund, who was a wonderful cinematographer. Actually, this movie too had probably they 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 say the most cinematographers to ever work on one single movie. But he was the head cinematographer, and what he did was was quite amazing. Particularly when you look at the lighting, the way scenes shot. You know, one other thing that I, I think about Close Encounters, outside of the clothing and maybe the cars, but even not so much because station wagons still exist today, it is sort of kind of timeless. I was timeless. behind a station wagon yesterday. Were you really? I kid you not. <laughs> See? And it was, it was speeding. It, it was going faster than my 2015 car. I'm like, this is not That's right. That's great. But outside of They're that, still it's still sort of timeless when you think about it because there isn't – there's – I can only rec- recollect one source um, music cue, and that's Boston's More Than a Feeling, which is slightly heard at, at, at the McDonald's uh, at the yeah. beginning of the movie. And then, of course, you have When You Wish Upon a Star. So but John Williams, I mean, come on. You can't beat him. <laughs> no, you can't beat his score. 
um, what's you just can't. Um, so and and people still till to this day. I mean, Sony is is uh, working on a 40th anniversary edition disc, which will even have some more of Steven Spielberg's home movies from behind the scenes. Um, you know, and Spielberg actually he champions this movie because it was very personal for him. And if you ever have the opportunity and any of the bonus features to watch him talk about Close Encounters of the Third Kind, I, I, I urge you to do it because he does it with an introspection of maturity. And not many directors will, will do this, but he talks about how he, he says, he goes, I couldn't make Close Encounters today. No. He goes, I couldn't do it. He goes, because... He goes, you know, I'm a family man. And when I, it was, I can't grapple. Like back then, it made sense for me to have Rhaenyra get on the ship because he wants to explore. He's seeing what this is. He goes, today I look back and I, I'm like, number one, a I, I'm a family, family man. I can't think of a man who would leave his family. Yeah. The other thing that he talks a lot about is when he made the movie, he was a believer. He believed in... Uh, he believed in UFOs and that was part of, that was his genesis and then government cover-up from from Watergate and whatnot they actually had a a, a famous UFOologist uh, who has a cameo in the movie his name was um, J. Allen Hynek and he actually he was a disbeliever he was he was to Fox he was Mulder to Fox Okay, uh. Mulder was the disbeliever. Uh, if you, it's an X Files thing, and Fox is the believer. He was Mulder. He was a disbeliever, and he was hired by the government because this was such a big deal at the time to write a blue book thing about UFOs. He interviewed so many people. He became a believer. He found that there was so much evidence out there that there was someone out there Can't that we're deny not alone. You couldn't. He couldn't deny the facts. Yep. And he was also the person who. Um, it's called Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Mm-hmm. I, he developed the barometer of what a third kind is, because there's a Close Encounters of a first kind. Yeah. Have you? Okay. Yeah. So go ahead. Uh, while you're explaining this, yeah. have you seen the trailer? For if you actually go back and watch the original trailer for yeah. this film, it explains. That. It's in the poster so, too. Yeah. It's in one of the original posters. So you have there's the sighting. Then there is the physical, whether it's a land depression, magnetic fields, whatever. Right. And then there is actual contact. Yeah, contact uh, communication. Yeah, communication. And he was the gentleman um, that this, this Alan Hynek, he came up with that barometer for it. He has a cameo in the movie. Um, you may remember there's a scene, Spielberg loves to do this, you know, crowd. It was towards the end of the film. All the scientists and one man comes walking up. And he has a pipe, mm-hmm. and he has a, like a beard uh, kind of thing. Yeah. That's him. Got it. He put him in the movie. Um, oh, another awesome cameo. Did you pick out Lance Henriksen? No. Nope. <laughs> Lance Henriksen is in the movie. And like not, he doesn't have a major part, but he's in the movie enough. He's almost unrecognizable because his face is uh, smooth. <laughs> he's not the Lance Henriksen uh, that we know of today but uh yeah i just think that its legacy is going to continue uh and and you should it's one of spielberg's most personal films the other thing that he talks about too is he talks about he's not as much of a believer anymore 
And his reasoning makes so much sense. He goes, everybody today has a camera phone. Because you would figure with camera phones, we would be seeing more sightings. Yeah, right. <laughs> he goes, because everybody's got one. He goes, but we don't. Yeah. Because we don't see anything. My only argument against that is, is because... We're too busy looking down at our camera phones. Instead We're really of not looking, looking up. up at the sky. Well, like, I love that board scene, that boardroom scene when the the man was showing, like, this is a picture of a flying saucer. And, like, yeah, yeah. everyone believes It's like, no, this is actually a picture of my kid throwing, throwing a, a tie, plate. A, a the, pie plate. Yeah, a, a plate in the yard. Well, like, yeah, you can take any picture and call it what you want. Right. From anybody. And I, I think that really, that watching that today, knowing how social media is with the, you know, saturation of everybody mm-hmm. has ability to take whatever photo or video manipulated in whatever way. I was like, yeah, yeah this... This film makes more sense back in the four, in the, like forty years ago than sure. it would now. Yeah, and, you know, and again, <laughs> in that same scene, you had the old man who was on the, he was on the street when the when when Roy first sees the UFOs and they come by and they duck down, ice <laughs> yeah. cream, ice yeah. cream, and you see the old man, uh, who's just happened to be there in that like old in that old in that scene that boardroom scene he's like i met i saw bigfoot once he made a sound that i would not want to hear to-. and then like you just see Roy Neary going don't help me <laughs> just don't help me i'm trying to figure things out here i got a wife who's gonna leave me <laughs> like you always have to have that one schmuck to, to be the peanut gallery <laughs> yeah and that was him <laughs> yeah uh, did you recognize that old man uh, he yeah he looked very familiar. He's the old man in Home Alone. Home Alone. He's the neighbor. That's him. That is him. He's the neighbor. I was like, in I Home know something alone. that makes sense. Well, that's also a great film too. It Anything is. else about this film before we wrap it? You know, I, I you know I, we, we talked about you know I think we we talked about all the the, the various editions how Spielberg pretty much single handedly saved Columbia's bacon. Um, <laughs> he brought the bacon. <clears throat> yeah, he brought the bacon. Um, you know, it, maybe at some point, like his, his folly people would say would be, I believe his follow-up film was like 1941. Um, and, but then he went on to do E.T., but he does credit Close Encounters and Carlo Rumbaldi, by the ways, who did the alien at the end, who did the hand the signal, puppeteering. Which, is a, which is an actual hand signal thing mm-hmm. for, for the thing. And he did the puppeteering and he, and he made the facial things. And Spielberg looked at that alien, and that was his genesis of an idea. And again, it, it was born out of his parents' divorce, uh, imaginary friends, E.T., coming e. down, and, and, and it was an alien. And Carlo Rimbaldi went on to uh, create E.T. He made that, that creature. He also did King Kong, uh, the Dino De Laurentiis version, which came out, I believe, of the same year, 77 or 78. Um, with Jeff Bridges. So Carlin Rimbaldi was very integral. Uh, obviously, to Close Encounters, uh, Spielberg also had something else that was very interesting. If you noticed, all the aliens looked different. They weren't the same. Right. Right? First, you had the spider creature, which I was thinking about you. Because oh. I was like going, is she going to get grossed out by this? But yeah, yeah like the... The, the lanky arms, down. that was yeah. for me. And then you had the little... Kids. The little kids, and they were actually dance troops. But I remember watching them. I was like, "Oh, they're so cute." The kids, and then you had the puppeteer, but they all look different. And, and Spielberg's rationale catch about how forward thinking he is. He goes, well, "We're here on Earth. And we all look different. So why should we assume that they're not going to look different? Yeah, that they're going to the look same. all the same? They're going to have different races, and they're going to look different." 
And I was like, Very true. that's sort of kind of forward thinking when you when you break that down. Like, you're that, right. Yeah, that's why I wanted to have my aliens look all differently. And even E.T. Isn't, doesn't even look like there are similarities. But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, one more thing about little Barry and Carrie. Uh, at the very end of the movie when he comes off the ship, uh, he was wearing bar- ballet slippers and he was afraid he was going to slip and fall and he was very embarrassed to wear ballet slippers. <laughs> but when he gets I picked up by, by, by Jillian and he goes, are they leaving? And she goes, yeah, and he starts to cry. When he said, are they leaving, he meant, are we done filming the movie? Uh, and when she said yes, he thought, oh, this is the end. He goes, I'm not going to see my friends anymore. So he really started to cry. And then Melinda Dillon really started to cry. And everybody filming it was crying because the little boy was, he was like, bye. <laughs> he was like, bye. And, he's, and it, like, to me, is like the cutest story. Right. And that kid, it's I don't know if he ever did another movie again, but he, he takes working on this. If you see interviews with him. He's so proud that he had this moment, and he he tells great stories, uh, ones that I recounted here. So you should go try to seek those out. You might find them on YouTube or the new Blu-ray release of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So there you go. Yeah. So All there right. you go. I hope I uh, hope everybody enjoyed, and hope if anything inspired you to maybe now watch the movie if you haven't already, or to revisit it. Yeah, absolutely, and I'm glad that we did a, a retro movie because it's been a long time since we've done one of those. And the time so. for it because there's nothing that's come out the past couple of weeks. I know, so we're, f- <laughs> we're filling in the gaps, <laughs> yeah. so to speak. And this movie was re-released for a reason, and I think it's a good reason. Um, I wish we would do it more. I wish it made more money at this re-release because I think there were so many movies that that audiences including myself, should be able to experience on a big screen mm-hmm. because that's what really makes it special. So, Great. Yeah. Great. Well, and thank you, everyone, yeah. for tuning in and watching us. Where can everybody find us. you? Yes, you can follow me on Twitter at Serafini TV. Yes, television. And uh, you can follow all of us here at Popcorn Talk at the Popcorn yeah. Talk on all social medias. Our particular handle is at Movie Anatomy. We dissect movies every week. Every week. Lots to, a lot of movies to talk about, and we can even go back to movies like this. Yeah. So where can we follow and, you? Yeah, and I'm on, uh, please support me on Twitter at DMovies. 1701 that's at D movies 1701 oh there was a Star Wars reference in Close Encounters that we didn't get to did you notice it at the mm. bottom of the mothership as it's going over Melinda Dillon's character she looks up there's a little R2D2 oh. hanging upside down nah <laughs> on the mothership it, she's still on the mountain I think I was blinded by the bright lights on the platform so we'll see he just loved putting things oh Star Trek was also in the movie did you see that nope <laughs> it was hanging in the boys room they had the Enterprise and a Klingon cruiser oh I saw the Enterprise hanging yeah, because yep. even I, I said out loud, I was like, that's the Enterprise. Yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> so they, I noticed last, that. <laughs> last tidbits before we uh, before we go off into the sunset ourselves and get onto the big mother ship. Yep. Uh, folks, please uh, continue to join us. We'll be talking about it yeah. later on, which I uh, can't wait to talk about 2017. See, the cool thing about this one, the first, the Stephen King's original one came out in 1990. Yeah. It comes back every 27 years. Yeah. 27 years later is 2017. You're talking the miniseries. It's coming out. It, yeah. yeah. It. So the, you wait. have that to look forward to. Can't wait to talk about that one. anatomy. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Thank you all. We'll see you next Take time. Care. Bye.
from producers Maria Menunos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network, we would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit popcorntalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Popcorn Talk Network or its owners or principals.